Let's start in Acts chapter 6. Allow me to just tackle one that often becomes a prickly difficult subject. In the church, we practice hierarchical priesthood. Now, in the home, we don't. Let's be clear. In the home, we do not practice hierarchical priesthood. We practice patriarchal priesthood. And that's a subject for another day if you want to address it. Name the only other place in the church we practice patriarchal priesthood. That's hierarchical. Everywhere in the church is hierarchical except for one place is patriarchal priesthood. That's hierarchical. That's what's interesting is, can a, st- can a stake president give patriarchal blessings? No. And yet, who ordains the patriarch? The stake president. That's hierarchical. In other words, he's ordaining a person to keys he doesn't even hold necessarily because he holds the Melchizedek priesthood. The only place in the church we practice patriarchal priesthood is in the temple. Let me give you an example. Those of you who served a mission, your mission president practiced patriarchal priesthood. What authority did your mission president's wife have in the mission? Did she preside when her husband wasn't there? She did not. But in a temple, who presides over the female ordinances? The matron. Does the temple president have anything to do with female ordinances? Nope. Does she have anything to do with male ordinances? That's patriarchal priesthood. Patriarchal priesthood is husband and wife stand. Is it like this in the home? Nope. It's like this in the home, right? And they stand side by side. That's patriarchal priesthood as we practice it in the temple. But in everywhere else in the church, we practice hierarchical priesthood. Now, I know that makes people uncomfortable. So let's, let's draw and let's deal with the uncomfortableness and let's see if we can correct it, okay? In the church, we practice hierarchical priesthood. And the reason we do that is to maintain order. So there is one person who holds all the keys and has all the authority. If Russell Nelson comes to my sacrament meeting, who presides? Can he go to a sacrament meeting where he doesn't preside? Can he go to any church meeting where he doesn't preside? Where's the only place he could go and he wouldn't preside? In my home. <laughs> in my home. Now, the church, the, the temple is a little bit patriarchal because the stake president or the temple president does report to, he has superiors that he has to report to. But if Russell Nelson comes to my home, who presides? Okay, trick question. Russell Nelson comes to my home and my wife is there and I am not. He comes with his wife. He comes with Wendy. Russell Nelson comes with Wendy to my home and only my wife is there. Who presides? My wife presides. <laughs> so we practice hierarchical priesthood. So we have, we have President Nelson, and then somewhere along here, we've got a row of stake presidents. So here are all the stake presidents in the church. And then we have a row of bishops. And so this stake president is in charge of these bishops. And my bishop presides in my sacrament meeting until 
my stake president walks in and then instantly my, my bishop does not preside. He is not in charge anymore. The stake president is in charge and the stake president would preside until a 70 walked in, an area authority 70 walked in and then no longer does my stake president preside. Now, the reason we practice hierarchical priesthood is to maintain order in the church. It gives us structure and it allows order and conformity and the, the work moves forward. Now, what makes us uncomfortable with hierarchical is that in the world's version of this, hierarchy usually is interpreted as power and value. The CEO considers him or herself much more important. And there's kind of an arrogance and a pride that goes with this. And so people don't like to talk about the church being hierarchical because we often associate negative things. And so let's be clear. Jesus imposed a completely different structure on his hierarchy. So let's read that. Let's start there. Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28. The Savior made it very clear that when it comes to his hierarchy, that is not the case. Who wants to read these three, well, four verses? Matthew 20, 25 through 28. Speaking of hierarchy in his kingdom, he said, Abby. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. And they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. So what's he saying? It's okay if the Savior has a hierarchy because it's not a normal hierarchy. Who's at the very top of the Savior's hierarchy? And what does he consider himself? A servant. So in the Lord's hierarchy, as you go up that, what also should increase? Service, humility, all of those attributes should increase. Let me show you just kind of a fun one. Turn to section 124 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And again, I, I don't want to dwell on the fact that, yes, we can all give examples of this not happening. But <laughs> we should just chuckle and then move on, right? We can all give examples of this not happening. But in the Lord's kingdom, the higher I go up, the more my service attitude should increase and my humility should increase, right? The people with the greatest authority should also be the greatest servants and the most humble. I love this. What happened to... Let's go to section 124. This is the first section received in Nauvoo. And at the very end, look at starting, starting in one, two, one, two, three, section 124, verse 123. What does Jesus call 
his servants. What does he call bishops and stake presidents and general authorities and apostles? What does he say? I now give unto you. I now give unto you the officers belonging to my priesthood. What is a prophet? It's a gift. What is a patriarch? It's a gift. What is a bishop? It's a gift. These are gifts from God. And notice he goes through part of the hierarchy. Verse 124, I give unto you a patriarch. He's a gift. I give unto you a presiding elder over my church. And I give unto him counselors. I give unto you a first presidency. I give unto you Brigham Young to preside over the Quorum of the Twelve. And he just kind of goes down the hierarchy. I give unto you a high council. I give unto you 133. I give unto you a president over a quorum of high priests. What do you and I call the president over a quorum of high priests? That's the stake president. There is one quorum of high priests per stake. And the president of that quorum is the stake president. But what does the Lord call the stake president? I love this. The president or servant. I love that. Now, just to complete this, at the very end of this, notice what he says. All of these officers, the above officers, I give unto you and the keys thereof for helps and for governments, for the work of the ministry and for the perfecting of my saints. So I think we need to say, okay, I'm okay with the Lord's hierarchy because it's very different than any other hierarchy. And the higher you go up, the more a servant you're supposed to be, the more humble you're supposed to be, the kinder and the more gentle you're supposed to be because the one at the top is the most kind and the most gentle and the most service-oriented of them all. You don't belong in the hierarchy if you don't buy into that philosophy. But the whole reason I do this is go back to Acts chapter 6. We all need to take our place in the hierarchy. Everyone, the reason it works is because everyone does their assigned task. Now, what happens if I don't do my task? Do people, people from below me step up and do my task? Is that how it works in a hierarchy? If I don't do my task, if I'm here and I don't do my task, do these people step up and do it? No. Where does the help come from? The, that's ideal, but what's normally happening? Someone from here steps down, and the work they are doing gets hurt. Let me give you an example. One day, I went to the church early on a Sunday morning, and it was snowy, and my bishop was shoveling the, the walk. Now, why would my bishop be out there shoveling the walk? Because... Because the people he called didn't do it, and it's important that it gets done, and so the bishop's going to step down to do it. But what wasn't the bishop doing while he was shoveling the walk? 
things that only bishops can do. And so the irony was, Bishop, I can shovel the walk. I can't go in your office and do things that only bishops can do. So what we need in this church is for everyone to do their duty so that people who are supposed to be doing this job can do that job. And that's chapter six. Go to Acts chapter six at the very beginning. The apostles, and I think this, I, I think the translation came across bad. I don't think Peter, Peter sounds a little arrogant, but I don't believe if Peter belongs in that hierarchy, he can't be arrogant, can he? So I don't know if it really was translated correctly. But verse 1, in those days when the number of disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Now who's going to go take care of widows? Apostles are going to go take care of widows because they don't want widows to struggle. But what's not going to be done if apostles are taking care of widows? The work of apostles. So verse 2, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, This is the translation. I don't think this is correct. It is not reason that we should leave the work of God and serve tables. A better translation would have been, Guys, for the sake of the kingdom... We all need to take our place in the hierarchy so that people, the people who can do, the, the people who can do only this job can do that job. It is not right that apostles are the ones that take care of the widows because there's things that only apostles can do. And if I'm not doing my job so that he has to come down and do mine, it's his job that's going to be neglected. I can shovel the walk. What I can't do is what the bishop's doing in his office. So I shouldn't neglect my job, which would force him to come and do it. That's, I think, the gist of a hierarchy. And the only way it's going to work is if we all participate and do our job. Stephanie. I think an, an easy way to understand this in the world is, let's say you have a toy store, and somebody's inventing the toys. And you've got people assembling the toys. Great analogy. And somebody needs to get paid, right? Great analogy. But the workers feel like everybody should get paid as much as the inventors of the toys. Because that inventor is inventing one toy a month, right? Making making revenue for the company. So they cut the inventor's wages and give it equally. Now everyone's getting paid equally. But the inventor's like, you know, then I what? this other company and I could get paid what I should get paid because I'm the reason why we have a company. So now they lean it onto the workers. Hey, we've lost our inventors. Now you guys need to invent the toys. And they invent the toys, and they're awful toys. They burn up, they incinerate, they poke a child's eye out. I mean, it's, it's bad. And they're like, you know what? I think we need to get the inventor back. Because that inventor was worth paying them what they were owed. We can get paid less because we don't have that skill. And it's okay because now I still have a job. Because before, 
the company went under with our awful taste. Yeah. And do you see the order? Now, let me take the analogy a different direction. Let's suppose I don't sweep the floor. No, let's suppose the clerk doesn't show up to check the customers out. So the inventor has to come down from his office and check the customers out. What's not getting done? Toys aren't being invented. And pretty soon, what's going to happen in this company? It won't matter who's checking the customers out because no one's going to come. Now, look, someone needs to say, hey, I can check customers out. You know what I can't do is invent toys. And that's, I just think the plea here in all of these early chapters is we need a group of 70 to step up and do what the work of the 70 so the apostles aren't coming down and doing the work of the 70. The apostles can do the work of the apostles. And so in every ward, in every organization, in every class, we need to all say, okay, what's my position in this hierarchy? And let me do it. It is not meet that the apostles should leave the word of God and do what other people are doing, can do. There's certain things that only apostles can do. So how about you guys do that work and we'll take care of the widows. Do you see how the kingdom works? Now the beautiful thing, what I love about the kingdom of God is this guy's gonna get released and where's he gonna go? (laughs) He's gonna go down here and he's gonna be thrilled, right? He's gonna say, I'll take, give me a primary class. I'll love it. I love that who was Peter, James, and John's teacher? Who was kind of there? Who led, who brought Peter, James, and John into the kingdom? John the Baptist. When John the Baptist shows up to restore the Aaronic priesthood, do you remember what he says? I come here under the keys of Peter, James, and John. He was now servant. And they were now a step ahead. But originally he was up here. And that's the beauty of the hierarchy is releases happen and then we take our position. And my stake president is now a primary teacher. And I watch the primary president tell him when he can leave. (laughs) Sorry, you can't leave yet. It's not your turn. And my stake president, former stake president says, okay. Because who holds the keys? Who's in charge? She is. And that's how it works in the kingdom. If we misunderstand that, or if we misjudge the Lord's hierarchy, it leads to a lot of problems in the kingdom. Yes, because there's no one here that's more important than anyone here. But there has to be a structure in place so that we have order. That's the beauty. Okay, that's chapter six. That's kind of the calling of the 70. Now we get, we get familiar with a couple 70s. And one of the ones that we're going to talk about is Stephen. So now let's go to chapter seven. Now the beauty of chapter seven, let me step aside. Stephen is going to preach a powerful sermon. And I love the sermon. And we're going to get to the effect, but Let's pause a little bit, and and there's a lesson in this sermon. Who did the Jews absolutely love? Who were their, I mean, if they had trading cards, 
If the Jews had trading cards, what were the most valuable trading cards? Who is it that they would never give up? Who did they always revere and talk about? Moses was one of them. Abraham, right? We are the children of Abraham. And they loved Joseph. Wouldn't you agree that all the Jews loved Abraham, Joseph, and Moses? So listen to the story Stephen tells them. Oh, you love Abraham, do you? Verse 2. My brethren, men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, dwelt in the Charan, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. And he came out of the land of the Chaldeans, and he dwelt in Charon. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and his seed after him. And as yet he had no child. Now I'm going to skip ahead. Verse 8, he gave him the the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham beget Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day, and Isaac beget Jacob, and Jacob beget the patriarchs. And the patriarchs, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. It's a little bit of a twist, but he's saying the patriarchs got jealous and sold Joseph, and you worship the patriarchs. In other words, you did the very thing you're condemning. You condemned them for selling Joseph, and yet you, out of jealousy, crucified Christ. You're doing the same thing that you criticize was done to the patriarchs. He's going to do it again. So now we're going to get to um, Jacob, verse 2, verse 12. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers. And Joseph kindreds was made known unto Pharaoh. He sent Joseph. I got to shorten this song, but I just really want to get to Moses. Let me just start with the patriarchs, but I really want to get to Moses. So let's just jump to 20. In which time Moses was born. And he was exceedingly fair and nourished up his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for their own sons. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and in deed. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. And he supposed, he thought that his brethren would have understood how God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he shewed himself unto them as they strove and would have set them at one against saying, Sir, we are brethren. Why do you do one another wrong? And he said to his, and he that said, and he that did his neighbor wrong thus thrust him away saying, 
who made thee our ruler and judge over us? In other words, you are doing to Jesus exactly what they did to Moses. Moses thought that his brethren would understand and that he would understand that he came to deliver them and they didn't understand and they smote against Moses. So if you love Moses, if you love Moses, who else should you love? Who was just like Moses? Who had the same thing happen to them that happened to Moses? Do you see what Stephen's doing? Jesus sits in the position of all the patriarchs. He was sold by his brethren. He was persecuted by the very people he came to see. He just keeps telling story after story. Um, Verse 35, after Moses is called, this Moses whom they refused, saying, who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer. Do you see the jab there? You honor Moses. Why are you missing Jesus? Why are you not seeing that Jesus is in the same position that Moses was in? And so finally, he he makes the connection. Verse 51, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets have your fathers have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which have shown before the coming of the just one, of whom you have now been the betrayers and the murderers. And you have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. I think there's a powerful lesson that we often, we miss, we miss the lesson that we're honoring. Let me give you an analogy. It is common in our society to hate haters. If someone's a hater, what do we do to them? We hate them. We hate haters. Kate, hold on, hold on. If it's okay for you to hate them, then it was okay for them to hate whoever you're criticizing. You cannot respond to what you're criticizing with the same thing. If you hate the hater, then you're saying it's okay to hate the hater. And if you're hating a hater, then you're saying that that's fine. And I think there's a powerful lesson in that. Quite often, we reject Jesus by association. Um, Why did we leave England and come to America? Why did the pilgrims leave England and come to America? Religious freedom. And then what did they do when they got here? They They imposed their religion on everyone else. And it's just that tendency to say, you are missing the point. You love Moses and hate Jesus, and yet they're connected. I think that sermon ought to cause us to pause and say, wait a minute, am I persecuting the very prophets that I adore? Am I doing the very thing that I'm criticizing? 
Am I judging people who are judging other people? Do you see that lesson? I just think Acts chapter 7 is just such a rebuke to them. You honor Moses, and yet you're doing the very thing that the critics of Moses, you did to Jesus what the very critics that you criticized did to Moses. You love Abraham, and yet you're doing the very things to Jesus that the other patriarchs did to Abraham and his family. I just think that's a great lesson. Any insights you want to throw out? Acts chapter 7, Stephen's rebuke is just powerful for me to pause and say, am I honoring? Am I guilty by association? Am I doing the very thing that I'm criticizing? Um, I had a son that was just so angry at a political situation. He was angry and he was livid. And I said, well, wait a minute, aren't you doing the very thing to them that you're criticizing that they did? So which is wrong? What you're doing to them or what they did to the other people? How can what you're doing be okay, but what they did is not okay? Acts chapter seven. Any other thoughts? I think it's a very common human nature for us to take our bias and say, well, as long as they're doing my bias, they can have you know freedom of speech, yep. freedom of this or freedom of that. But as soon as someone takes a counter view, you're like, why? they shouldn't even be able to say this. That's yep. not fair. Yep. And it's like, look at what they're telling people to do. Look what influence it's like. That's just because you don't see it their way. Yep. That's the spirit of, St- of Stephen's address. And it's just like, you're, you criticize, you reject, reject, you're rejecting Jesus, and yet you're criticizing the people that reject the prophets. You're doing the same thing. I think it's also really easy to see it in history, but it's super hard to see it in your own timeline. Yeah. Like if you look at prophets nowadays compared to, you know, looking at Jesus now from our point of view, you know, yep. it's one of those things where a lot of people can accept it. Yep. It's hard in your day and age to accept it. Beautifully stated. But that's the spirit. Stephanie. Elder Oaks was there, and my dad had a a pornography addiction, and he didn't hide it. He, you know, he knew it was wrong, and he did his best to get over it. And John, by the way, said, you know, the day that we finally have a priesthood session, back when we had priesthood sessions, where we're not talking about porn, we're going to start really learning something, because I know these prophets could teach us something. And I thought that was so profound, and my dad loved it, too. He's like, yeah, we could finally get off of something so basic and start learning something that would actually get us to stop looking at porn, right? And so Elder Oaks came in, and he had given a talk about that very subject. And he's like, Elder Oaks, not to be rude. I don't even, my, my dad is a very brave man. <laughs> but I, I think you were a little soft on us. And Elder Oaks just paused and said, that's, that's quite the insight. And he just left it at that. My dad prayed about it, and he was so heartbroken. He's just like, I can't believe I just said that to Elder Oaks. What, ah, crazy. And his wife came in, and he's like, oh, my gosh, please tell your husband I'm so, so sorry. And she said, you know, he had a, he had a real hard time writing that talk. Would you like to read what he wrote? Yeah. Like, pull my arm. So she sent it, and, and the original. What he didn't give in conference. He did not give in conference. <laughs> and he's like, Whew, "This 
I know this from the Lord because I know what the Lord is trying to say. I know you're struggling, guys, but I love you. And so when Elder Oaks came in, he gave me that third apology, written everything. And I had the letter that Elder Oaks gave back to him and my dad's scriptures he's passed on. And it says, no apology, no apology needed. I know you spoke from your heart and I know you want what's best for all of us. And I'm just, I just want you to know that I love you and I don't condemn you for calling me out on trying to be more fire and damnation. Because <laughs> sometimes we need it and sometimes the Lord just wants us to be loved. Yeah. I just, that's such that, that concept of criticizing others and then doing the exact same thing ourselves. And so I just, I just, I love Acts chapter seven. It's always caused me to self-reflect and say, am I criticizing and yet doing the same thing? Such a tendency to do. Um, I found a couple weeks ago in my own life was when um, I met one of my friend's friends and she, our mutual friend had to leave to go to work, so we got on the subject of like church history and stuff because she's um, evangelical, and we're like wanting to provide a space online where we can all like talk about what we agree or disagree on. So we're like preparing for that kind of thing, but she started just asking me questions, and I noticed that like I couldn't explain some of the things because she thought she agreed with me, but I could see that we didn't agree. Um, so like an example was we were talking about the Trinity and we were just going in circles because like she was like I agree with you and I was like but you don't because like the whole separation of the three and I was trying to explain it but she's like I think we agree and so I think we should just leave it at that. <laughs> I guess we can because like she got what I was talking about, yeah. but like, um, it's just the way we apply it to our lives is kind of different. And so like, it was a weird moment where like, I could see the separation in my head, but she couldn't, but it was kind of a good thing that she couldn't yeah. because like, there was more unity in like, um, finding the commonalities between religions. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful example. It's my priority. I, I'm fine as long as you do it my way and as soon as you don't do it. But to see someone else's, is, that's a beautiful example. But when he finally gets to the point, you are the very people who, 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 who cast Moses out. You are the very people who sold Joseph into Egypt because of what you did to Jesus. No, 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 I don't want to talk about that. So they pick up stones and they start to stone him. Now, verse 55, I just think we need to pause and say, I think this is the character of Heavenly Father. Sometimes we have this attitude that pain is evidence that God is not there. That if God were there, I would have a pain-free life. I know people don't believe that with their words, but they believe it in their heart. They seem to think that pain is evidence of God not being there and not caring. Because if He were there and if He did care, I wouldn't be in pain. But what we know about this mortal life tempers that to say, no, 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 pain isn't an absence of God. In fact, what do you know about God in your most painful moments? 
What have you had the humility now to look back and see in your most painful moments? That wasn't when I wasn't with God. That's when he was the closest to me. And standing as a testimony of that is this single verse of scripture. While he's being stoned, Heavenly Father didn't stop the stoning. He just opened up the heavens and let Stephen see where he was going. I think this little moment was Heavenly Father saying, I'm not far. I haven't left you. I'm here. You may not see me like Stephen did, but I'm not that far. If you ever find yourself in that moment of pain as if you were being stoned by your enemies, I want you to just remember this beautiful story. Enjoy the temple. Just, in, in, in enjoy, just remember this beautiful moment. I think the whole purpose of removing the veil and showing him Heavenly Father was to remind Stephen, I'm not far. I haven't left you. I'm not taking this away, but I haven't left you. Let me give you an equivalent in our modern day. I have in my office a little yellow cup signed by Elizabeth Smart. And let me tell you why. Let me read her story. Now, she was abducted at age 14 and violated by a 50-year-old man, 14-year-old girl, 50-year-old man. I can't imagine the terror that she went through. It haunts me to think about it. But this beautiful little moment happened that I think is very much like Stephen being stoned. This is from her biography. All day we sat and cooked in the summer heat. Mitchell checked the water containers once again, but all of them were dry. I had thought that being hungry was difficult, but it was nothing compared to this. Nothing compared to the burning in my throat. Nothing compared to the drive to find something to drink. And I wasn't alone. Barzi and Mitchell felt it too. I could see it in their eyes. I could hear it in the dryness of their voices. Whatever had driven Mitchell to stay away from the bottom of the canyon must have been very powerful indeed. The day dragged on, hot, miserable, dry desert heat. I was beginning to lose my energy. None of us wanted to eat. I begged Mitchell to go down and get some water. I begged him to let me off the cable. I offered to carry the containers if he was too tired to carry them himself. I tried to understand why he couldn't go, but none of it made sense. Evening came. We went to bed. I fell into a restless sleep. I was awakened in the middle of the night. Sitting up, I looked around. The moonlight filtered through the nylon fabric, casting the inside of the tent in a yellow and a pale yellow light. Mitchell was asleep beside me. Barzi was laying next to him. Both of them were breathing deeply. Mitchell's throat rattled with every breath. I looked around in the moonlight. Something had awakened me. Turning, I looked towards the front of the tent. There was a yellow cup sitting beside my pillow. I leaned toward it, checked it in the moonlight. It was filled to the very brim with water. I stared at it a moment, not believing it was real. I reached out to touch it. The cup was cold. I pulled my hand back and looked around. Was I dreaming? Was I crazy? 
I quickly turned to Mitchell and Barzi. Neither of them had moved. I listened. A gentle breeze blew through the tops of the trees swaying in the night. I turned back to the, the water. Slowly, I reached out to touch it again. It was cold as ice and filled to the top. I picked it up and drank it. The water cooled my throat and filled my stomach. It was cold and clear and wonderful, the best tasting water I had ever had. After drinking, I stared at the empty cup for a long time, laying my head back on the ground. Where did the water come from? I have no explanation other than that the water came from God. I know we didn't have a drop of water in the camp. I know that neither Mitchell nor Barzi would have awakened me to give me any water, even if they had any left to give. And this water was fresh and cold like it had just come from the spring. I never told them about the water. I never talked about it. But over the next few days, I thought a lot about what had happened. Why did God do it? What happened? How did it happen? What was God trying to say? Would I have died without the water? Certainly not. As thirsty as I felt and as terrible as it was, I wasn't teetering on the edge of a life or death situation. And I wasn't alone. Mitchell and Barzi needed water too. Mitchell wasn't going to stay on top of the mountain and let us die of thirst. Eventually, he would have to go down to the stream. So why did God send me the water? Because he loved me. And he wanted me to know. He wanted me to know that he was still near. He wanted me to know that he controlled the earth and all the heavens and all things were in his hands. And if he could move the mountains, then he could do this thing for me. To him, it was a small thing, a terribly easy thing to do. But for me, it was as powerful as if he had parted the sea. This experience reminded me once again that God had not deserted me that he was aware of my suffering and loneliness. And that assurance gave me hope. It helped me keep my faith and gave me the strength I needed to go on. To me, that's the story of Stephen. In the moment of being pelted with stones on the way to dying a horribly painful death, the heavens are opened. And Heavenly Father was reminding Stephen and me and all of you in those painful moments of our life, he is not far. He has not abandoned us. He is aware of our suffering. He knows the needs of our mortal life and that we need to go through these things. But he is not far. And that's why I love that story. If you are ever in that moment, remember Stephen. And even if the heavens don't open, and even if a yellow cup doesn't suddenly appear, in small ways, I guarantee Heavenly Father will remind you that He is there. He does not abandon us, especially when we're in pain. Acts chapter 7. Any thoughts? Okay, we're going to skip Simon in chapter 8. Let's get to chapter 9. Let's get to the conversion of Paul. We need to know Paul. 
Now, go to the very end of chapter 7. We do need to make one connection. Go to the very end of chapter 7. When Stephen is being stoned, verse 58, who's holding the coats? Who's holding the coats of the people that are stoning Stephen? A young man by the name of Saul. Saul was there persecuting Stephen. Saul was one of the guys that are trying to get these guys out of commission. So now chapter 9. Verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went up to the high priest, desiring of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, by the way, that's what they called Christians. They weren't called Christ. They weren't called Christians until chapter 13, Antioch. They were called the people in the way, which is ironic because Paul thought they were in the way when they were really in the way. <laughs> but that's what Christians were called, in the way. So if there are any found of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He is going to arrest the Christians. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, One word, and Saul knew exactly, I am Jesus. I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. That would hit hard. Now, here is, for me, one of the greatest tests of a disciple. We talked about last class, remember the list of the disciples and the non-disciples? The non-disciple was cut. If you go back to chapter 7, what did the, how did they respond to, Simon, or to Stephen's preachings? Look at verse 54. How did they respond? They were cut to the heart. Non-disciples, when they hear a rebuke, are cut to the heart. Now, Paul, here's the test. I am the very person you are persecuting, Paul. I am Jesus. And tell me what was his very first statement after that. This is one of the most beautiful moments in the scriptures. Lord, what will thou have me to do? That's why I love Paul. He will be true to that character for the rest of his life. The moment he was rebuked. Now, he thought he was doing something good, right? He was zealously striving to promote what he thought was goodness and righteousness in the correct way. And he was rebuked for it. You are wrong, Paul. And immediately, what would you have me to do? Now, the next test is Ananias. A very similar test comes to Ananias. Abby? Uh, sorry, where is the, um, we talked about last week, 
Um, Acts chapter 2, they were pricked in their hearts. Verse 37, they were pricked in their hearts versus cut to their heart. And Paul's response is, Lord, what would you have me to do? Answer, go into the city. I'm going to have someone help you. So Paul can't see very well, so they help him in. And there was a certain disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, behold, I am here. The Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight. Inquire in the house of Judas for one Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Now, what test did he just ask Ananias? Hey, go give Saul a blessing. Go, go give Saul a blessing? Go give Saul a blessing, the one that has permission to arrest me? Go give Saul a blessing? Ananias says, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. And the Lord said, now I love this because it's a commentary on, on Paul. Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel to me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show unto him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And then this simple lesson, sentence, Ananias. What was implied here? What, what's, what's implied here? What did Ananias say to the Lord? What would you have me to do? And I'll do it. If we really go back, I want to go back to Mary. The New Testament kind of began when Mary was asked to do an impossible task. I need you to be a pregnant, unmarried, teenage Jewish girl. Can you be Jewish, pregnant, and unmarried? And Mary's response was, Be it unto me according to thy will. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it, be it unto me according to thy will. Do you see the attitude of the disciple? Mm 